0: It's that time of the night where we are going to jump into God's word. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 22. Exodus chapter 22, so you can flip over there with me if you'd like. Last week, we, we went over Exodus 15, the song of Moses, and we looked at what genuine worship should be, what genuine worship should be. And uh, we looked at, it at quite a few different points, and so just really quickly going over them again, we looked, we looked at the fact that worship needs to be first directed to God and for his glory. Our worship must be directed to God for his glory. It's not about us. It's not about who we are or what we've done or even what got necessarily um, the things that we, that we are in Christ. But our worship needs to be directed to God and for his glory. We also saw that our worship must be personal. It's, it's not just about singing things that, that really aren't connected to you, that don't make any sense to you. Our worship needs to be personal. It needs to be from the heart. And it's rooted in a relationship with God. We also looked at, at worship and saw that it has everything to do with who God is and what he's done in our lives It has everything to do with who God is and what he's done in our lives. It's like we were just singing, you're the one we've been waiting for, Jesus, Lord, and Savior. Worship, it has everything to do with all the things that God has done in our lives. What has he done? Well, he saved us. He saved us not only from hell, yeah, but from sin, from death. He saved us from ourselves. He's given us peace and comfort and rest. He has given us everything that we have. The very breath you're breathing has been given to you by God. And so worship has everything to do with who God is and what he's done. We also looked at the very important point that our worship has to be doctrinal. Our worship has to be doctrinal. It has to be biblical, right? You know, we can't Worship God by saying things, by attributing things to him that aren't true. Because if we're doing that, we're not worshiping God. We're creating God in our mind and worshiping an idol. We also saw that very similarly, not only should our worship be doctrinal, but it has to be true. You know, specifically, this means, you know, don't, don't offer God promises in your worship that you don't mean. You know, don't sing worship songs like, I would dance a thousand miles for you, Jesus. That doesn't make any sense, and you're not dancing a thousand miles for Jesus. Don't, don't sing that in worship, unless it's true. And if it is, praise God, go, dan- go dance a thousand miles for Jesus. But our worship has to be true. We also saw that our worship must be congregational, right? It's for everybody, right? It's not for one person. It's not for the worship leader, it's not for the, the two or three people in the congregation that sing really well. Worship is congregational. It's for everybody, right? And the last thing that we saw is that worship is, is rooted in obedience to God. It's rooted in obedience to him. Well, if you haven't been reading along, as a family, we're reading a chapter a day through the Bible, right? Right? chapter a day. If you haven't been reading long, if you've missed this last week, this is basically in a quick nutshell what's happened since chapter 15. Israel is wandering through the desert. They've just been taken out of Egypt. You remember as we're studying the book of Exodus we're seeing two themes. The first is obvious. The second one we have to look a little bit for. The first one, the obvious theme is that God is orchestrating everything to save a special people for his glory, right? God is orchestrating everything to save a special people for his glory. This is obviously seen in that God has organized the rise and fall of men, natural disasters and plagues. All these things to save Israel, this special people. Were they special in and of themselves? No, they were only special because God chose them, right? But he saves this special people, takes them out of Egypt. Why? For his glory. For his glory. The second theme that we're looking at is that the book of Exodus is about being separated from the world. Being separated from the world. Remember, As Christians, as we study the book of Exodus, Egypt is a type of the world. The world, the things that Egypt does, is a type of sin. Israel, God's chosen people, is a, a type of, yeah, us as Christians, we're chosen by God, as we see in Romans 8 and 9. We're chosen by God. And God has orchestrated everything. He has taken all of history and planned and pieced it all together to save us for his glory. And so the book of Exodus, as we study it as Christians applicationally, how we can apply it to our lives. The book of Exodus has everything to do with us turning our backs on Egypt, turning our backs on the world and on sin and chasing after God with our face toward the promised land, right? But between Egypt and the promised land, what did Israel go through? They went through the wilderness. And so that's what we have happening. Israel is now, you remember, they're at the, the Red Sea there last week in chapter 15, worshiping God, praising him at the edge of the Red Sea, and they take off toward Mount Sinai, into the wilderness. In chapter 16, Israel begins their their first ever, well, maybe their second ever instance as a people of grumbling and complaining. Where's the food? You know, it's like that old commercial, you know, beef, it's what's for dinner. Well, the Israelites were wondering, well, where's the beef? You know, what's for dinner? And uh, so God provides miraculously this bread from heaven, manna from heaven to sustain the people of Israel. Well, after bread... What comes next in in the people's minds? Well, now they got to complain about water. And so in chapter 17, God commands Moses to strike this rock and it splits and water gushes forth from it. And all the children of Israel, there's water enough for all of them. God provides for the children of Israel as they wander through the desert on their way to Sinai. Along the way, Uh, Moses is constantly being burdened down by the people uh, coming up to him and and having him sort of arbitrate their different disputes, like decide who's right and who's wrong. And so Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, gives him the advice, hey, you need to get some some people up under you. Delegation is key, Mo. And so Moses raises up these elders to help him uh, govern the people. In chapter 9, Israel finally gets to Mount Sinai, and beginning in chapter 20, Moses makes his way up Mount Sinai and receives the law from God, receives the law from God. The first five books in the Old Testament, all written by Moses, we've talked about this, it's called the Pentateuch, the Torah, or the, anyone, everyone, law, yeah, yeah, the law. That may not have made sense up until now, why this was called the law, but here, from this point on, especially through uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, we're going to understand why the first five books of the Old Testament are called the law. Because it's a bunch of laws. It's a bunch of laws. Now, I know what you're thinking, great. This is the first time we're going to actually look at the laws in the Old Testament. This is the study where I fall asleep. Don't do that. Don't fall asleep. I promise you, as much as many Christians believe that the law is dry and boring and lifeless and applicationalist to our lives. I think I just made up that word, applicationalist. That is, I made it up. We're going to use that the rest of the night, applicationalist. What? What? Urban Dictionary. Okay, yeah, I, I just made up a word. Submit that to UrbanDictionary.com. That's where you can make up words, or Wikipedia, because you can make anything up there too. But um, no, don't fall asleep during this during this study, okay? Because whether you believe it or not, now the law is one of the most rich things in the entire Bible. It's one of the most rich things in the entire Bible. You're like, Tyler, what are you talking about? I love that Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, probably one of the longest songs ever written, is all about how David delights in God's law. This makes no sense to most of us as Christians. How could you possibly delight in the law? It's boring. How many of us love to read... Like half the people. The rest of you, get reading. (laughs) But even those of you who love to read, you probably wouldn't love to spend your time in a legal library. You know, those are where all the really big books are, really richly bound with like gold uh, engraving on them. It's where the, the really huge books, you take it off, you open it up, and you can't understand half the words in there or why they're there. For the most part, you wouldn't like to go reading in a, in a legal library. Even lawyers don't really like reading in legal libraries. But as we study God's law, we're going to see something so much more impressive than a bunch of laws. The reason why God's law is so rich, and the reason why we read God's law, is because when we read God's law, and if we can learn, like David said, to delight in it, We're going to see better who God is. God's character is imprinted on his law. You understand, God gives the laws he does because they're extensions of his nature, of his character, of who he is. And so when we read and study God's law, we get to better understand the God that we serve. When we read and understand God's law, we get to better understand the God that we serve. And so the law isn't boring, okay? It's not boring. Another thing that we think about the law a lot of times is it, it doesn't make sense and it's not applicable to us. It's not applicable to me or to you. Um, as I was thinking about that, I, I went and I looked up uh, some unreasonable laws. I love reading unreasonable laws because they're, they're just so funny. They don't make sense. Like, did you know that in Riverside, Riverside, California, it's illegal by some obscure city ordinance written probably uh, close to 100 years ago that you may not carry food down the street between 11 and 1 o'clock in the afternoon. You You can't carry food down the street during lunch in Riverside. Who knows why? It doesn't make sense. It has no application to our lives. And what cop is going to arrest you for carrying a bag of Carl's Jr. down the street in downtown Riverside? Nobody, nobody's going to arrest you for that. They probably don't even know or care about that law. It doesn't make sense to them and it doesn't make sense to us. So even though that law may still be on the books, it's not a law that's well obeyed and it's not a law that's well enforced. This kind of inspired me to dig a little deeper and I, I just looked up... Crazy Laws in California. This was p- pretty interesting. According to, uh, according to Code 1959, Section 4237.2 of the City Ordinance of Walnut, California. Walnut. I have no idea where Walnut, California is, but maybe you do. Don't go to Walnut, California during the month of October because no person shall wear a mask or disguise on a public street without a permit from the sheriff. So don't you go trick-or-treating without a permit, okay? And don't you dare send your kids there because they'll get tagged with fines instead of candy. In Chico, California, it's unlawful for a person in the city to play baseball upon any street, sidewalk, lane, or alley. It's illegal to play ball in the street. That's like one of the most time-honored pursuits of every American boy is to play baseball on their street, right? Not in Chico, California, okay? You could get arrested for that. Not really, probably. I mean, again, it's one of these laws that doesn't make sense. Nobody enforces it. Nobody probably even knows about this law. And so nobody obeys this law. It doesn't make any sense to them. I'll read two more just because they're extremely ridiculous. This one also in Chico, California. It's illegal to detonate a nuclear device within the city limits. It's an important law to write. I think that should be in all of our laws. It's illegal to to detonate a bomb within Chico, California. And the fine, if you do so, is $500. So uh, don't you go, you know, detonating a nuke in Chico because it's a $500 fine. In Riverside, apparently, that's okay. You can do that. That's legal. But not in Chico. The last one, and this is really ridiculous. You'll have to bear with me. And the reason why I decided to print this out is because it's so detailed in its ridiculousness that I love the point that it made. In Fresno, California, Section 8 1016, it is unlawful for any bingo game to be operated in violation of any of the following conditions. No minors shall be allowed to participate in any bingo game. All bingo games shall be open to the public, not just members of the nonprofit organization. No person shall be allowed to participate in a bingo game unless the person is physically present at the time and place in which the bingo game is being conducted. The total value of prizes awarded during the conduct of any bingo game shall not exceed $250 in cash or kind or both for each separate game in which is held. No permittee shall conduct any bingo game except between the hours of 12 noon and 12 midnight, nor shall any permittee conduct Uh, conduct bingo games for more than four hours during any 24-hour period nor shall any permittee conduct bingo games more than two days in any seven-day period except at locations within a target area from highway 41 to tulumney street between broadway h and q street (laughs) wherein bingo games may be conducted any day of the week And further, no location, including a single building or series of contiguous rooms or buildings, shall be utilized to conduct bingo games more than eight hours a day during any 24-hour period. The people in Fresno sure love their bingo. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. And so because it doesn't make sense, Nobody follows that law. Nobody obeys these ridiculous laws. And nobody enforces these laws. We don't understand them. They don't make sense. This is how we sometimes look at the laws in the Bible, though. We look at the Mosaic Law, the law that God has given to Moses. All in all, we think of 10 commandments, and there are 10, but ultimately, there are 613 commands in the mosaic law we look at these commands and we think these are ridiculous they don't make any sense they're not applicable to me i'm not worried about playing more than two consecutive bingo games within a 24-hour period or within a series of contiguous buildings conducting a uh, series of bingo games more than eight times in a 24-hour period this is ridiculous i don't care i don't care but understand, all of these laws had their purpose at some time when they were written down. It's not like uh, these city and county and, and state legislators le- legislatures are sitting around trying to think, hey, what ridiculous laws can we put on the books? No, they had a purpose. They had a meaning in their time and in their context. Most of these laws that I pulled out are ripped wildly out of context. And if I put them within the context, it would make a lot of sense to you. You'd understand, well, that's why that law is there. And so as we study God's law, let's not just throw it out the window. Like some of these ridiculous, unobeyed and unenforced laws that I just read. But let's see why God has written this law down. Because as we know from 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, including the law, including the law, all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. All scripture, including the law, is breathed out by God. And family, as we study the law, let's, let's pay close attention to what's happening here. Because as we do, we're going to better get to see who God is. Let's pray. Father, as we dig into your word now, in Exodus 22, as we look at your law, God, I pray that you would speak to us about who you are and about what you're doing in our lives. God, I pray that this wouldn't be disconnected or far removed from us, but that you would Show us how relevant your word is to our lives. That we really seek to apply it. To lay aside sin and to draw closer to you. God, teach us like David did to delight in your law. Please, Lord. In your precious son's name, amen. Exodus 22. As you know, we do a lot of pausing here and a lot of explaining, and we're probably going to do more pausing than we've ever done before. But begin reading with me in Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. We'll pause right there. How many of you have oxen or sheep? How many of you have ever stolen an ox or a sheep? Casey? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Nobody has, okay? Nobody. So, hey, here's the good news. You've gotten some of the law right. No, I'm just kidding. What does this mean, though? What is the point of this? If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. What does this mean? Why is this here? And gosh, that seems a little bit harsh, I mean, if I were to steal your ox, okay, and you found out that it was me who stole it, I would have to give you five oxen back. Well, if I stole an ox in the first place, that must mean I don't have enough oxen of my own. So how can I ever repay that debt? This seems so harsh. But understand, family, what's going on here is that in the in the context of the culture around them there was another code that prevailed among the land and it was the code of hammurabi and the code of hammurabi which pretty much the rest of the world lived their lives by on a legal basis stated that if you were to steal an ox from a king you were to be put to death if you were to steal an ox from a poor person you'd have to pay him back tenfold and anyone else in the middle, like just your average middle class person that you stole from, you'd have to pay him back 30 fold. Now that's ridiculous. And in fact, the, the Code of Hammurabi stipulated that if you couldn't pay the debt that you owed from stealing from that person, that you'd be put to death anyway. But what God is doing here is God is instituting a legal repercussion system around restitution. Restitution. Restitution just means that I pay you back and then some for what I stole or cheated you from. Our legal system today is based on incarceration. Based on incarceration. If I steal from you, I go to jail. I serve time. But you really never get paid back. You never really get what was taken from you restored to you. And so, God, rather than having an, uh, a legal system based on incarceration or like the code of Hammurabi based on pretty much death and, and torture, it's rather based on restitution. So if I steal from you, I'm just supposed to rightfully restore to you what's yours and then some based on the trouble. Understand, an ox was uh, a beast of burden. An ox was what the, the children of Israel used to plow their field. And so in a sense, an ox was representative of people in that day, was representative of their livelihood. It's how they made their money. It would be like if you went and stole a construction worker's tools. If you stole a construction worker's tools, you've stolen his livelihood. You've taken from him how he provides for him and his family, and the same was true for oxen. Oxen are notoriously difficult to train, and it could take up to three or four years to train a good ox to plow a field. And so to steal an ox was a relatively big thing for you to steal. This not only robbed that person of you know, maybe a, a family pet or, a, or just a, a piece of livestock, but this was their livelihood. And so, if you were to steal an ox in Israel, in God's economy, it, if you were to steal, you had to repay that person fivefold for that ox that you stole. And likewise, for sheep, you had to repay back fourfold if you stole. Again, this seems ridiculous to us today, but what's being said here is if you steal from someone and you're caught, the punishment is making it right, is making it right. It's not about going to jail, it's not about serving time, and it's not about having an appendage cut off. It's about making it right. Not too long ago, there was a a series of corporate scandals that robbed people of quite a bit of money. Companies like Enron and ExxonMobil and all, all these companies were involved in, in fraudulent business activity that ultimately was robbing the consumers of what was rightfully theirs. These companies, these head executives, you remember quite a few years ago, we saw them on the news being taken out of their luxury lofts and apartments and being loaded into police cars. Many of them went to jail And some of them even had to pay fines to the government. But in almost every case, the people who were truly robbed never got their money back. They never got their money back. God doesn't want it this way. If you steal from someone, if you take something that's not rightfully yours from someone else, the just thing is to make it right. Make it right. The thing that we can see through God about this is how just God is. How just God is. If you go and try and dishonestly gain something that's not yours, ultimately, you're just going to be giving more of that back. If you go try and gain an ox, you're just going to lose five. If you try and gain a sheep, you're just going to lose four. And ultimately, with other things, as we're going to continue to read, with everything else, for the most part, if you tried to, to steal a cherry, you'd have to give back two. What you tried to gain, you'd end up losing. I love how just God is. I love how just God is. He's not about killing somebody for stealing a sheep. That's ridiculous. We would never do something like that in America. But it's done elsewhere, and it was done here in this day. If you stole a sheep from the wrong person, you'd be killed for it. But God doesn't want things that way. God is a just God. We'll continue reading, though. Verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. We'll pause. So if somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night and in self-defense you kill him You can't be charged for murder Again, if someone goes to break into your house in the middle of the night and you wake up and and there's an intruder in your home And you grab a baseball bat and hit him over the head in self-defense and kill him You can't be charged for murder but if it's in broad daylight and someone breaks into your house and you kill them, you can be charged for murder why what's the difference? This doesn't make sense here's the thing in broad daylight, you can see better the man's intentions. You can tell better if he's there just to to steal you know some furniture or whatnot or or livestock or or you can see if he has harsher intentions if he's armed if he's there to kill you or harm your family also in broad daylight it's easier to call for help people are awake business is going on probably right outside your door remember and understand israel lived in fairly close to each other Okay, this was a lot of people that lived really close to each other. It's not like cities where you live, you know, relatively far away. You're all pretty close and business is probably being done right outside your tent. Okay, right outside your home. And so if someone breaks into your house in the middle of the night and you kill them because it's dark, you can't be charged for murder. But if someone breaks into your house In broad daylight, you have to apprehend them and bring them to the proper authorities. See, again, God is just, and he values the life even of the thief. Again, this is very different compared to Hammurabi's code, which in the time said that if a man broke into your house, he should be killed right then and there and walled in. In other words, he would become part of your wall that he broke in. That's pretty harsh. That's pretty intense. But God sought for justice to be done. Not for people to just be killed wantonly. God was not supportive of vigilante justice, just taking care of things on your own. God wanted justice to be served. And so a thief that broke in in broad daylight that you could better understand his intentions and call for help of the people around you, He was to be apprehended and brought before the judges. God is a very just God. And he's not interested in people just being killed left and right. God is not interested in people just dying needlessly or at the hands of one another. God's a just God and he loves to see justice done. This is so important for us to understand because... Christians, people who don't understand the Bible and just take verses out of context here and there, would love to paint the picture that God is an unjust God. They would love to paint the picture that he loves bloodshed. They would love to say, well, God commanded the, the killing of, of all these people. The Amalekites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Hezekites and the Jebusites. And God just commanded them all to be wiped out. Men, women, and children too. God commanded them to be totally devoted to destruction in the book of Numbers, as we're going to study. God is so unjust. He's so ruthless. But family, as we see here in his law, God is a just God. God is a just God. He doesn't delight in bloodshed. If someone breaks into your house in broad daylight and you're able to apprehend them, you must apprehend them and bring them to the judges. We'll keep reading, though. Sort of the last half of verse 3 there is where we left off. He shall surely pay. If he has nothing, Then he shall be sold for his theft. If the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. (laughs) So again, if someone steals an ox from you and they kill it, they need to pay you back fivefold. If they steal a sheep and they kill it, they need to pay you back fourfold. If they break into your house in the middle of the night and out of self-defense, you strike them down and kill them, you can't be held for murder. But if you do it in broad daylight, if you do it in broad daylight, it seems like you're just taking matters into your own hands, and God does not want that. He wants that thief brought before the judges. He wants justice served, and he shall surely pay. He shall pay. But if he has the the ox or the sheep or the donkey that he stole, if he has it alive in his possession, he just has to give it back twofold. So in other words, give you your donkey and another one. Why? because you didn't end up losing that animal really in the first place. You don't have to go through the the pain of raising and training another animal. And so you're only recompensed twofold instead of five or fourfold. But here's the deal. If he can't pay, remember, according to the law of the land, according to the law of the day, that man should be killed if he can't pay his debt. But according to God's law, he works off his debt. It's sort of like, you know, those old TV shows like I Love Lucy. It happened where she and Ethel go to the restaurant. They can't end up paying for the meal. And so they just wash dishes in the back to work off their meal. In a sense, that's what's happening here. If the thief could not pay the debt that he owed, he would be sold. And in a sense, he would work off that debt. He wouldn't become a slave forever. He would be a slave until he worked off that debt. We'll continue reading, though, in verse 5. If a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beast loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution for the best in his own field and his own vineyard. We'll pause right there. So what we've covered so far in these laws what we've covered so far is instances of theft right theft if someone steals from you what we're covering now is something called negligence negligence laws of negligence here's what's happening if you uh let your your cows graze on someone else's field and they eat someone else's grass which is pretty easy to do in this time. We don't have barbed wire fences anywhere. It's not like we have uh, retaining walls or anything like that. But if you let someone else graze, or I'm sorry, if you let your animals graze in someone else's field, just saying, hey, sorry, it was an accident, isn't good enough. Oh, my bad. I, I didn't mean to let that happen. Doesn't cut it. It doesn't cut it. You should have taken better care of those animals. And so what God commands is that you make restitution by letting their animals graze in the best part of your field. If you let your animals graze in their field, logically, what's what's the punishment? How do you make that up to them? Will you let their animals graze in the best part of your field? Again, God is a just God. God is a just God. And he wants to make sure that we have order, right? So let's continue reading. When we get to the end of these laws, I promise it's all going to come together and it's all going to make real good sense about how this applies to our lives. I know you're still thinking, I don't live in Norco, I don't have oxen or sheep, and I don't let my cows graze anywhere, but I promise it'll apply to you, I promise. Verse 6, if a fire breaks out and catches in thorns so that the stacked grain or the standing grain or the field is consumed, he who started the fire shall make full restitution. What's going on here is that oftentimes farmers would set their fields on fire to clear it, right? They have a whole bunch of weeds or old wheat that they've already harvested and it's just uh, whatever's left in the field, sort of the roots and, and shoots and stems, what they do is they set fire to their field so that they can clear it so that they can plant something else. They can plow and plant again. What would happen sometimes, though, is they would set fire to their field and either by some carelessness or a random gust of wind or some poorly placed shrubbery, sometimes this fire would spill over and burn parts of another, that's sort of like their neighbor's property, their neighbor's crops, and it would burn up some of their crops. Again, in Israel, sorry doesn't cut it. Oh, my bad. I didn't mean for that to happen to your land. I was just trying to have a controlled fire on my land. I'm so sorry about that. No, you were supposed to make up for it. You're supposed to make up for it. Again, remember, God is all about restitution, being it being made right. He's to make full restitution. Verse seven, if a man gives to his neighbor, I'm sorry, I want to pause right there just to point out. We're now closing out laws of negligence, and we're getting into borrowing and lending. Borrowing and lending. So we've covered theft, negligence, now borrowing and lending. Verse 7. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God and show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. For even breach of trust, or I'm sorry, for every breach of trust, whether it's for an ox, for a donkey, for a sheep, for a cloak, or for any kind of lost thing, of which one says this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one in whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. Okay. So what's happening here is there's no banks in this time. There's no safety deposit boxes. There's no safes. There are no storage sheds. So if you were going away for a long period of time, you were going, say, from your little encampment up in uh, Judah, and you were going down to the tribe of Simeon, to visit your relatives. You're going to visit your cousins over where Simeon is all encamped out. You're going to be gone for a while, and so you want to make sure that your valuables are taken care of. So what would you do? Well, you'd take them to your neighbor and say, hey, here's my ox or my donkey or my jacket or whatever it was that you wanted for him to keep safe. You'd give it to your neighbor and you'd go on a journey. Well, what would happen if you came back from that journey, you came back from vacation, all your cousins in Simeon are doing real well, and you get back home, and you go to your neighbor and you say, hey, can I have my donkey back? And he says, man, the craziest thing happened. While you were gone, a robber broke into my, my yard and stole your donkey. How convenient does that sound? How convenient does that sound? Wait, what do you mean? He didn't steal any of your stuff? He just stole my donkey out of your yard? Give me a break. And so what would happen in this case is the man would come before God. He would draw near to God. He would go to to the judges and, and draw near to God and basically swear that he didn't steal the piece of property. The judges would make a full inquiry. They would do an investigation to see if they could find that man's donkey anywhere. And if they determined that your neighbor didn't steal your donkey, you were out of luck. He didn't steal your donkey. A robber stole your donkey. But if the robber was caught in the act, then the robber had to make restitution, right? We've already talked about that. But there's one more clause. There's one more instance. What if, as the word says, it's known for certain, it's certainly known that, it w- that the animal was robbed. Then the guy who you entrusted it to, then he had to pay you back double. Wait a minute. What, why is that? What's that about? Here's what's happening here what it says is if it's known for certain that the animal or the the thing was, was robbed, was taken. In other words, if the guy was standing there watching someone steal your donkey, he should have done something to stop it. He should have done something. And so since he watched as your animal was stolen and did nothing, he has to make restitution or pay you back in a sense for the donkey that you lost and then won, and then won. Does that make sense? I think it's pretty logical. Again, we see that God is pretty logical. He's pretty just these laws. Aren't they're not that foolish. They don't they make that little sense. I mean, they may not still apply to my life, but at least they're logical. God's pretty smart. I like where he's going with this. Well, let's keep reading. If a man gives to his neighbor, verse 10, a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe, and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. What's happening here? Okay, so let's say, I'm taking care of your family ox for you. And you go, and the ox somehow just up and leaves, or wolves come and chase it away, and I wake up the next day, and your ox is gone. I I don't know that it was robbed. I, I don't really know what happened to it, but it was there last night, and it's gone this morning. When you come back, I basically say, hey, look, your ox is gone. But I give you my word that I didn't do anything. I didn't steal your ox. I didn't make it go away. I didn't see anything that happened. It's just gone. I don't know what happened. When you do that, when you make that oath, when you swear that you don't have anything to do with it and you don't know what happened, that owner, that friend, you're just supposed to take me at my word. You just take me at my word. And no restitution is made. Understand what's happening here. Once again, we have God being incredibly just. If I don't have any control over that circumstance and your ox just happened to run away, it's not my fault. It's your ox. You did a bad job of training it to stay within the confines of people's yards. So... I don't know what happened. How should I be held responsible to pay you back for your ox running away? Once again, God is a just God. God is a just God. Again, remember the, the code of Hammurabi would have stated that i be put to death for something like this. That's ridiculous. But we see God being incredibly just. We'll keep reading. We're almost done with this little section and then it will all be made clear, I promise. verse 11, no, I'm sorry, verse 12. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution from his owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. So again, if an animal, if a a, uh, coyote comes and eats your sheep, it's not my fault. Coyote came and eat your sheep. Here's the remains. No restitution is to be made. We'll keep reading. (coughs) Verse 14. If a man borrows anything from his neighbor and it is injured or it dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. So let's say I say, hey, Fry, Brian, I need to borrow your ox to plow my field. And you say, okay, Fry lets me take his ox and I go and I plow my field with his ox and his ox just has a heart attack, and dies right there in my field. Bummer. If Fry wasn't with me when it happened, he doesn't know if I was pushing that ox too hard or if I was beating it savagely or if I fed it poison or I did something to kill that ox. He wasn't there. He wasn't there. He doesn't. He has no control over how his ox was being treated. I, in a sense, killed it And since he wasn't there, I have to make full restitution. In other words, I have to give him his ox back. I have to give him an ox back. Not his ox back. His ox is dead. But I have to give him an ox back. I have to make full restitution. Verse 15, if the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. So if Fry was with me when it happened, if Fry was helping me plow my field with his ox, and his ox just up and died, man, that's a bummer. Your ox just died. I I don't have to do anything to pay you back. The ox would have died whether it was plowing my field or or Brian's field. I, I didn't do anything to hurt the ox. He witnessed that with his own eyes. He was there helping me plow the field. He was driving the ox himself. And so no restitution shall be made. One final clause in this set of civil code. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So in other words, if I said fry... Let me borrow your ox. And he said, no, you've killed two of my oxen already. And I said, fine, Fry, let me rent your ox from you. I will give you money and rent your ox. He says, okay. I rent the ox. The ox dies. There you go. Fry's out of luck. The fee for that rental, part of the rental agreement in a sense is, hey, I'm giving you this money, but part of this money is the insurance policy if your ox dies. If your ox dies, it's not on my hands. That's part of the fee that I paid you for renting your ox. All of this, again, it may make more sense to us now in that it's logical and that it's just, but to us, this doesn't make any sense. We don't have oxen, sheep, or donkeys If you did, I don't want anything with your ox and your sheep or your donkey. I don't want to steal it. I don't want to take care of an ox. I don't know how to take care of an ox. I'm not going to steal that from you. And I'm definitely not going to borrow it and it dies while it's plowing my field. I don't have a field to plow. And if I did, I'd rent a John Deere tractor, not an ox. Or whatever, Caterpillar, Volvo, there's all kinds of... Whatever, but (laughs) the point is, this doesn't make any sense. It's not applicable to our lives. Or is it? Again, remember, we just said, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness. And God's law, as we study it, we see so much about his nature. As we've seen, God is a just God. And he's not interested in bloodshed. But what God is interested in is it being made right. If you borrow somebody's DVD and you break it, buy a new DVD for them. If you're borrowing their car and it breaks down, you should fix it. If you're playing baseball in the street, which again, remember, you cannot do in Chico, California... Don't do it there. It's illegal. But if you're playing ball in the street and you swing late at a fastball and it breaks someone's window, pay the damages. So often, we just really believe that sorry is good enough. But again, in God's economy, sorry isn't good enough. It's not enough to just say, oh, my bad. I didn't mean to burn down your field. No, make that right. Right. Family, as Christians, when you borrow something, make sure that it gets taken care of. Make sure that it gets back to the owner in the same condition that it was lent to you in, or if possible, better condition. If you break it, if it breaks down, if something happens while that's in your possession, make it right. Buy a new one or pay to have it fixed. God understood that a victim... Part of the rights of a victim is to have that thing be made right to you. Family, this needs to be true for us as Christians. This needs to be true for us as Christians. Yeah, we don't have oxen. We don't have sheep. We don't have any of these things, but we all have possessions. We all let people borrow our stuff. It needs to be made right. It needs to be made right. Ultimately, also, I love how genius God's little system on theft is. So, so genius. In America, if you steal something, you serve some time in a cell with cable television, three square meals a day, no taxes for whatever time you're in prison. I mean, it's pretty much like a little getaway, which is why there are people who are pretty much lifers in prison, even though they were never given a life sentence. They're in prison, and they get so used to living in prison that when they get out, they break the law just so they can get put back into prison. That's really their their mentality. It's not that they're just you know addicted to crime or anything like that. No, they just want to be back in the system. Back in the system. And what ends up happening? All these people that get... Uh, burglarized, burglarized, that get robbed, that are held at gunpoint and have are mugged, and, and all these things. What happens to them? Nothing. They don't, they don't get that back. But that person ends up living a life that they pretty much want to live. They're in prison, incarcerated. That's not the case in God's economy. God foresaw that that kind of thing would happen. And so how do things work in, in Israel? Well, if you need an ox, and you're going to go about it by stealing it, you're going to lose two. And if you need an ox and you kill it, you're going to lose five. The cost far outweighs the benefits when it comes to theft. So what happened in Israel? Well, most likely a pretty low crime rate when when it came to theft. Why? Because it cost way too much to steal something, Than it did for what you were gaining. But the cost always fit the crime. The cost always fit the crime. So often people quote this scripture out of context. People love to quote scripture out of context. Scripture like, hey man, judge not lest you be judged. You know? Or hey, God loves the whole world including me and my sin. John 3.16 says so. People love to quote scripture out of context. And one of pe- one of the scriptures that people love to quote out of context is, hey man, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Yeah, that's true. That's part of God's law. That's part of the Mosaic law and that's part of God's justice system. But you're not understanding the context. The context is, is that if someone plucks out your eye, the most that you can take from them is their eye. If someone knocks out your tooth, the most that you can take from them is their tooth. Is it literally saying pluck out their eye or knock out their tooth? No, what it's saying is the punishment should always fit the crime. If someone knocks out your tooth, you can't cut off their hand. If someone trips and accidentally gouges out your eye, you can't kill them. The punishment must always fit the crime. The punishment must always fit the crime. Yeah, the punishment was harsh enough that people didn't want to continue in that sin, continue in that crime. But it always fit the crime. Family, God is a just and holy God. And he has established these laws, these this civil code, which seems to not make any sense to us, to make sure that people... And more specifically, victims are protected against crime. God has established this civil code to make sure that victims are insured against crime. They're protected against it. I don't want to steal something from you if it's going to cost me five of what I tried to steal from you. I don't want to treat your stuff badly if I know that I'm going to have to pay for it if I do. I'm going to take good care of your laptop if I know that I'm going to have to pay for it if it breaks. Family, as Christians, this is how we should always treat each other's stuff. Again, do we live under the law? Well, not like Israel did. I mean, I'm not going and sacrificing a goat once a year. So we're not under the law in that sense. But understand, family, when Jesus came... He said that not a jot or a tittle, not the slightest mark shall be removed from the law or the prophets by his ministry, but that it would be fulfilled by his ministry. In fact, Jesus was very serious about keeping the law, but he simplified it into two things. We're studying these two things as we study the Bible. You remember the first is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said that all the law and the prophets are summed up in these things. And that's what's going on here, family. Do you need to go every time something happens to you and injustice happens to you and run to Exodus chapter 22 or run to the book of Deuteronomy or Leviticus and flip and try and find the law that specifically applies to your case and make sure that that's upheld? No, you don't need to do that. We live under the law of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. The golden rule, right? If you wouldn't want your stuff treated badly, don't treat other, stuff, other people's stuff badly. If you wouldn't want it done unto you, don't do it to others. That's what's happening here in this civil code. That's what's happening in this civil code. God is basically breaking down all of these instances, all to point to the ultimate law of love your neighbor as yourself and love your neighbor's stuff as your own stuff. That's the Tyler Revised Standard Edition. If you're borrowing someone's stuff, take good care of it. If you break it, pay for it. If you steal it, give it back. Take care of other people's stuff and don't go around robbing people of what's not theirs. Love one another as you love yourself, family. Yeah, we know that stealing is wrong. It's part of God's big ten, right? Thou shalt not steal. But we also need to make sure that we're taking care of other people's stuff when it's in, when it's under our watch, when it's in our possession. We need to make sure that we're loving one another as we love ourselves. And part of how we do that, family, is we're studying how to do that practically. Part of how we do that is taking care of other people's stuff. There's another thing that I want to point out that's very important about this not only take care of other people's stuff But just take care of others stuff in general When we come into sips coffee shop don't destroy the place, you know (laughs) Because otherwise poor tyler will be here cleaning the whole time Tyler says amen (laughs) No, i'm just kidding When you go to church don't leave trash on the floor You know, when it, when there's the sign that says no food or drink in this building, don't take food or drink in that building. There's a reason for it. It's so that that stuff gets well taken care of. When you use, you know, the the church's equipment, take good care of it. We were just up at high school camp and uh, if you've ever been to, uh, you know, to a camp, especially one of Harvest's high school camps, you know that it it just gets crazy up there and there's madness. You know, as counselors, we bring up grips of food, just total junk food. I had like 50 bags of chips, you know, like little bags of chips, not big bags of chips. That'd be ridiculous. (laughs) Like ding-dongs and ho-hos and Skittles and Snickers bars and just every junk food that you can possibly imagine up there. We all bring up tons of ridiculous stuff. One of the cabins, though, a bunch of kids were being really careless with all this junk food, and we're spilling it all over the floor, and then we're just walking all over the place and crunching it into the carpets. One of the camp workers came up to us and told us, hey, you know, this particular cabin is, I just walked in there to get a broom, and it's a wreck. You know, we need to make sure that that gets cleaned up today. I was like, okay, you know, and in my head I was thinking, how bad could it be? You know, I walk in and I felt like I couldn't even walk on the floor because it was just disgusting. And there was like a muffin like smeared on the wall and it was just it was ridiculous. I hadn't seen anything like it before in my life, and I felt so bad that I had, I mean, I didn't blow off the camp worker, but it was sort of like, okay, yeah, we'll take care of it. You know, don't worry, it'll get clean. But in my head, I was thinking, how bad could it be? You know, it's always messy up here, and we clean it up afterward. But we went, and myself and, and my coworker, Jason Powell, we cleaned the cabin spotless. And the, the head maintenance person at the camp, came in as we were cleaning it up, and, and he was like, hey, you know, thanks for cleaning this up, and it was sort of one of those things where it was bad, but, you know, I had definitely seen worse, and, and Jason and I, you know, just in conversation had, had mentioned that, like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I guess it could have been worse, right, you know, like, ha, <laughs> ha, trying to make light of it, and he said, yeah, I've definitely seen worse, but this is God's property, and these kids have no right to treat it this way. I was cut to the heart, and immediately, you know, obviously bummed, and and we definitely had plenty to talk about with those kids when they got back from chapel. But what that camp worker said was so true, and it's something that we don't really think about. You know, Jason and I, as we were even cleaning it up, sort of had the attitude of, "Well, it's not that bad." Sorry, bro, but as Christians, we shouldn't. We shouldn't treat things that way. Not only is it other people's stuff, but family understand that as we're all now no longer slaves to sin, but yeah, slaves to God. Like Paul said, I'm a slave to Christ. Yeah, we're all slaves to Christ, right? We're no longer ourselves, but we're his. So is our stuff. Our stuff isn't ours anymore. It's God's. That stuff didn't belong to that camp worker or the people who own the camp. It belonged to God. And so when we treat other people's stuff or stuff in general poorly, we're treating God's stuff poorly. You wouldn't go into God's palace and smear muffins on the walls. You wouldn't do that. Family, in the same way, we need to be conscious of how we treat other people's things. Because ultimately, it all belongs to the Lord. We'll keep reading, though. We're getting out of now the civil code and getting into some much more serious stuff. Verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Understand, family, we're not talking about property anymore. We're talking about people. We're not talking about property. We're talking about people. God sets up a very interesting law here. I say it's interesting because this is another one that people in our culture today would say, this doesn't make any sense, and they choose not to obey it. God has a very high regard for sex. We see that in creation. In Genesis chapter 2, when God creates Eve, right? She creates Eve out of Adam's rib, and he says, whoa, man. She's called woman and God says, I know that just set in right now. (laughs) You know, that's a bad joke when you don't get it at first, you know, but anyway, God says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. It's for this reason, for marriage. This was the first marriage, Adam and Eve. It's for this reason that the two shall become one flesh. It's for this reason that the two shall become intimate. Or it's for this purpose that sex exists for marriage. God has a very high standard for marriage. We know this. This isn't something new to us, right? God created sex to be enjoyed within marriage. And so God sets up a law because as there is now, there has always been guys who are interested in sex without the commitment to marriage. And so God establishes this law that if a man seduces a virgin and lies with her, sleeps with her, he is to marry her and pay the bride price for her. The bride price. What does that mean? Well, it's a dowry that was paid to the bride in a sense as security, like, Hey, I'm going to take care of you. Here's the proof. Here's this huge sum of money, which was usually in excess of 50 to 60% of their annual wages. It's a lot of money. It's a lot, a lot of money. So let me put that into standards today. Let's say you make $40,000. Your dowry would be 25 to $30,000. More like 20, $20,000 that you have to pay, give to your wife, guys, to marry her. That's ridiculous. Well, it's not ridiculous, but that's what's happening here. I mean, it's a ridiculous sum of money, but you understand what I'm saying. The reason why God has this established is this is an extremely great deterrent for premarital sex. Guys get this in their head that they can manipulate girls and, and say and, and do certain things in order to get sex. And God says, hey, if you do that, you're going to get married. You're going to get married. And not only are going to get married, but it's going to cost you a grip of money to go out and do this. <clears throat> this is not saying, family, this is an important thing to point out. This is not saying that sex equals marriage. In God's economy, if you have sex, that doesn't make you married. That's not what's happening here. That's not what's happening. In God's, in God's order of things, it's courtship, marriage, sex. In that order. Sex doesn't equal marriage. Okay? It's not automatic. But it's the right thing to do. There is a a little clause, a stipulation here though, for in the case that dad is not in a million years going to give his daughter to that jerk, okay? If that's never going to happen, let's say he's an abusive person or is not well suited to marry his daughter, then... He can refuse. He has the right to refuse his daughter's hand in marriage, but the guy still has to pay the bride price, still has to pay the dowry. That is, that is expensive. <laughs> That's very expensive. But again, why is this here? What's the point? Well, it's not only to ensure that people aren't taking advantage of each other, but again, it also tells us a lot about God's character. God has a high standard for sex. It's not cheap. It's expensive. God has a high standard for sex and he wanted to make sure that that was well outlined in his law and make sure that sex was never cheapened by man. Make sense? Reading on. Verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live, Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. I love when God puts it to the point. A lot of what we've been reading, there's lots of explanations, stipulations, ifs, ands, ors, or buts. Different clauses and different sections and chapters, in a sense, to this civil code. But here, it's just straightforward and to the point. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. These three are three of maybe eight or nine. I say eight or nine because there's a couple of them that are a little bit vague, but there are eight or nine Capital crimes in the Mosaic law. Eight or nine capital crimes in the Mosaic law. And this is three of them. A capital crime is a crime punishable by death. Capital crimes in Israel had to have at least two witnesses, eyewitnesses to that crime, or they had to confess. this was a high stipulation. This is the, the stipulation just for the record for treason in America. You can't just accuse someone of committing treason. You have to have two eyewitnesses to that act of treason. Why? Because treason in America is punishable by death. In Israel, these three of eight or nine capital crimes, again, had to have at least two witnesses, but they were so heinous They were so contrary to God's nature that God did not want to permit these people to even live. Why? Why? This is a really important question when we get to capital punishment here in Israel. Why are these sins set apart from the others? These three sins are all, again, Contrary to God's nature. The first one, sorcery. Sorcery. This is trying to work with demonic forces to practice magic or dark arts or sorcery to circumvent God's will, God's plan, God's timing, and make things happen in the enemy's strength and power. It's essentially taking God off the throne and putting Satan on the throne. It's taking God off the throne and replacing him with Satan. God doesn't want to be manipulated. He wants to be trusted. God doesn't want you to turn to the world or demonic forces. He wants you to turn to him. Taking God off the throne and putting uh, the enemy on the throne in Israel is completely contrary to God's nature. The second thing, bestiality, that's something that's so disturbing and so disgusting to us that in our minds, that shouldn't even have to be something named as a sin. Like we shouldn't even have to say that that's wrong, but it is. But why is it so wrong that it's punishable by death? Well, again, it goes against God's nature. God created the animals, yes, but he created man in his own image, in his own image. And when man acts like an animal, it's defaming or defacing God's image. Also, in this time, bestiality was very closely associated with Baal worship. In the land of Canaan, Worshippers of Baal would have intercourse with animals as a part of worship to Baal. So again, bestiality was associated in this time, in this context, with idolatry. Again, it's taking God off the throne and putting other gods on that throne. Lastly, thirdly, the, the capital offense that we see here is... Straight up idolatry, if you worship any other God other than the Lord, it's punishable by death. Again, it's contrary to God's nature. It's taking God off the throne and putting something else on it. But there's another aspect to it that makes these sins so abominable. Every single one of them are infectious diseases within the people of Israel. Every time we see them introduced, and we will see these three things introduced multiple times throughout the course of the history of the people of Israel, every time these things get introduced by one or two people, it spreads to the whole population. When sorcery or witchcraft or idolatry or, yes, even sexual sin is introduced into the people of israel it spreads to the population and so god is in a sense saying this is a disease that needs to be eradicated these are the gangrene of sins in a sense these are the things that just spread throughout the whole people of israel and so god says for the good of my people these people must be put to death Again, as we've seen in the law so far, we know that God is completely just in doing this. We've all sinned. Which of us deserves to live? None of us. None of us. God shows mercy on us, praise God, by allowing us to live. So to take our life for sin is just. It's merciful to not take our lives when we sin against him. But when we do these things, when we cause others in a sense to sin and we infect others with idolatry and, and taking their eyes off Jesus and putting them on something else, God takes this very seriously. And these three sins had the propensity to spread throughout the population and God knew it. So he ordered that these three offenses, these three sins, be capital offenses. This is serious stuff. But he deals with it so straightforward and so to the point. And I love that. Let's keep reading, though. We're almost done. And I'm very much over time. I'm sorry. Well, not over time, but I'm about to be. Verse 21 You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows, and your children fatherless. We see in Psalm 68 that God is the defender of the widow and the father to the fatherless. We read in Isaiah chapter 1 that this is what pleases God. Looking after widows and taking care of orphans. In the Bible we read that this is pure and undefiled religion before God. That you take care of the fatherless and the widows. God has a soft spot in his heart for widows and orphans. For those who can't defend themselves. And family, we need to too. We need to, as Christians, always have the mindset of taking care of those who can't. Because that's what God loves. Taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. So often we have the opinion that those who are less fortunate just need to take care of themselves. But that's not how it should be. Family, we need to be aware of the The orphan, the fatherless, and the widow in the church, in our family. And we need to take care of them. We need to take care of their needs. Not only spiritually, not only emotionally with being a friend to them, but physically. Taking care of them financially and and making sure that they're well provided for. God says, if you don't, I'm going to make you a widow and you fatherless. Fatherless. He says that to the children of Israel. God takes very seriously this. Taking care of those who can't take care of themselves and family. We need to make sure that we're always doing this. That we're always looking out for others. He also says, don't mistreat the sojourner. Don't mistreat the foreigner among you. But take care of them. So often, yeah, in America, we're like the melting pot, right? We have all these different um, people who are... Immigrating to uh, America And so often it's like we see these immigrants. They're different. They're weird. They don't know our customs We don't know theirs and so when we see those people we sort of cut them out We don't necessarily go out of our way to take care of them and to help them uh, Sort of acclimate themselves to American culture We have students that go to our our colleges that are, you know, foreign exchange students, and and we don't take care of them. We don't befriend them. We don't reach out to them. Why? Because it's weird. It's strange. It's awkward for us. But God says to the children of Israel, hey, you used to be foreigners. You remember how it was? So don't mistreat foreigners, but take care of them. Family, in the same way, we were once aliens to God. We were once enemies to him. But God has shown us grace and compassion And made us his children. And so in the same way, we need to always be reaching out to others and sharing that same compassion with them that he has shown to us. Wrapping it up, we're almost done. Verse 25. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like the money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. For that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. In what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. We'll pause right there. Hang on, I have to get a drink of water. My voice is losing fast. That's God telling me I need to wrap it up. (laughs) Pardon me. Family, what's happening here is God's saying if someone is poor and they come to you needing to borrow money, don't charge them interest. And if they give you collateral, which was customary in the time, and the only thing they have is the the blanket, in a sense that they sleep in, and they give that to you it 's the only thing that they have the this heavy outer cloak that that would keep them warm at night don't keep that overnight so that they are cold shivering in the in the elements. If someone among you is poor don't charge interest when they borrow money from you <clears throat> now, in the time of big banking where if you need a loan, you go to a bank. We don't fully understand this concept of people coming and asking for money from us, you know, and and us charging them interest or something like that. We don't really have that concept in America. And so ultimately, what's happening here is people would go to one another to get a loan, to get by for a little bit, and that person would customarily charge interest just like a bank would today. But what God is saying is if a person can't afford it in the first place, they're poor, they're coming to you for money just to get by. Don't charge interest. Don't charge interest on that person. It's not like you're not a credit card company, okay? Don't charge 22.6% interest, APR, compounding over time. Don't be like that. Jesus takes it a step further in Luke 6 and says, if someone comes to you for money and you lend it to them, don't even expect anything back. Don't even expect anything back. Like Shakespeare said in Hamlet, be not a lender nor a borrower. Right? We're told to owe one another nothing except for love. In the same way, family, when somebody needs something, somebody comes up and, hey man, could you loan me 20 bucks? Just give it to them. Just give it to them. Why? Because it shows God's love. It shows God's love. Why is this law laid out here? Why is God putting out these protections against people who are borrowing money but are poor? Why is God putting out uh, these specific commands to take care of widows and orphans and people who can't defend themselves? Why is God doing this? It's to show his compassion, to show his love. And family, we need to be beacons of that love and of that compassion. That's what what this law is written for. That we might love others as we love ourselves. That we might love others. Last little bit and then we'll be done. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. We need to pause right there. This is something I need to say. I'm going to say it very quickly and to the point. The people that God has put over you, including governors, congressmen, presidents, rulers, Pastors, church elders, these people that God has put over you, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Especially here in the church, this is becoming a problem where we start bashing our pastors and speaking out against the people who God has placed over us to shepherd us. I'm not saying that you can't go up to a pastor in love and question something that they've said, but you can't stand outside the church and tell people what an idiot that pastor is. You can't get on Facebook or your blog or Twitter and talk about how wrong your church is or how wrong your pastor is or how unbiblical his preaching is. Okay? You can't do that. Family, don't do that. When you revile or curse one of these rulers that God has placed over you, you're kicking against God is what the scripture says here. When you curse a ruler, you're reviling God himself. Again, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't, you know, be studying scripture. And if you have a conflict with something that your pastor has said, hey, go up to him in confidence and privacy and say, hey, you know, you said this and I've read this. And what does this mean? How does this work with what you said? But don't you dare get on Facebook and blast a pastor for the world to see for something that you probably are wrong about in the first place. God has placed those pastors there for a reason. Paul talks about that those rulers have been placed there by God. Placed there by God don't curse them. Don't call them heretics, especially at your own church. All you're doing is causing division and dissension. Look, if they're speaking out against the word of God, if they are saying something that is not true, and if they are directly contradicting God's word, and you go to them in privacy, and you share with them your heart, and you explain to them your case, that you believe that what they're teaching is not biblical truth, and if they don't repent of that, don't go to that church anymore. Simple as that. If you are convinced in your heart that that person is not preaching biblical truth, go to a church that is. But don't you dare stand on the church corner and curse that preacher, that pastor, that minister, that church, because if you're not right, you're in a lot of trouble because you're reviling God himself. This is something that seems to be going on in the church right now, and so I needed to take that time to say that. Okay? And again, it's not because I'm imposing my thoughts on the text. This is God's word. This is what it is. Amen? So as the family, we can't go around slandering and cursing the pastors that God has put over us. If you disagree with them, talk to them, pray for them, but don't you dare. Don't you dare get on some public forum and curse them. When you do that, you're reviling God himself. Closing. You shall not delay to offer the fulfillment I'm sorry, the fullness of your harvest and from the outflow of your presses. The firstborn of your sons you shall give to me, you shall do the same with your oxen and with your sheep, seven days it shall be with its mother, and on the eighth day you shall give it to me. In in short, God says, Don't hold back your tithes. I'd love to talk about this for the next hour, but I can't <laughs> But you should go listen go into the harvest bookstore right now and there's actually a cd that they're giving out for free And it's a message that james mcdonald preached a couple weeks ago at harvest. It's totally free And uh, it's about tithing. Go listen to it Go listen to it. You don't want to miss this Even if you've already heard the message go in pick a, a free copy of this message and give it to another christian Okay, don't miss this. It's totally free. Why not right? What do you what have you got to lose nothing? but don't hold back your tithes from God. Verse 31, You shall be consecrated to me. Therefore, you shall not eat any flesh that is torn by beasts in the field. You shall throw it to the dogs. In short, a beast that was eaten by other animals was unclean. God says, Even in the small things, be holy, be set apart to me. And again, that's what the whole book says. Of Exodus is about as we're studying it is being separated from the world being not like the world Again, you remember all the laws that we compared and contrasted to God's law were were radical. They were different But God is saying don't be like the world, but do what I've said Family we study God's law so that we can better understand who he is So that we could better follow after him and family, we together are studying the Bible so that we can better understand how to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. Today, we got to learn really well how to love our neighbor as ourself. Don't take from each other. Don't take what's not yours. And if you do, give it back and then some. If you borrow someone's stuff, take good care of it. If you break it or something happens that... You break someone else's property, make it right, pay for it, take care of it. If you don't have the money, work it out with them to work off that debt. Take care of it, make it right. Don't mock God. Don't take him off the throne. And take care of those who are in need. Amen. I know that this, was, this particular study was very long and I appreciate you guys sticking it out with me. It was long for me too. My throat feels like it's bleeding right now. <laughs> but this is important. This is God's law. And if we can learn to study it, when it's dry, to moisten it with a little sweat, to study and dig deeply, understand and delight in God's law, We will be well off because we will understand better who God is. Amen. Let's pray. Father, continue as we read your law to reveal to us who you are, more about yourself. God, we love you, but we want to study more who you are so that we can love you even better. Father, I pray that your law would never be boring to us. It would never be pointless. It would never be unapplicable to our lives. But that we would really seek and desire to obey you, to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one another as we love ourselves. God, keep us safe and give us opportunities to just love on people this week. And as we come back next week to Sips, Lord, God, I pray that we would come again looking to hear from you bless us this week. Please, Father, in your precious son's name, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. May God cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace.